from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. As tensions in Ukraine grow, are ag exports at risk? Farmers in Michigan say planting decisions this year may be last minute. Talk to some of my neighbors. They're thinking they're going to have to just cut back on inputs. That's as fertilizer may be strained even more due to a new vaccine mandate at the border. We'll explain why. And in John's world, the difficulty with deglobalization. Now for the news, as tensions in Ukraine grow, there are now concerns on what impact it could have on ag exports. World markets are keeping a close eye on this situation and the possibility that Russia is planning to invade its neighbor. Russian troops are gathering on the Ukrainian border and now up to 8,500 U.S. troops are on heightened alert for a possible deployment into Eastern Europe, while NATO allies are also sending jets and ships to the region. The uncertainty caused wheat prices to spike earlier this week and financial markets to fall. It's also adding pressure to global food inflation. AgriTalk spoke this week with president of LaSalle Economics about other potential market impacts there if a conflict occurs. Oh, I think the immediate response to that would be a spike up in the energy markets. I think you'd see a uh, sharp rise in both the price of uh, crude oil and the price of natural gas. Given the fact that Ukraine is such a large wheat producer, that would cause a spike up in agricultural commodity prices. You could expect a pretty sharp negative reaction in equity markets around the world. Now, the Kremlin is denying that an invasion will happen, but Russia has warned that it would quickly take retaliatory measures if the U.S. and its allies rejected security demands over NATO and Ukraine. So what type of impact could this have on agriculture? Well, these graphics from AgWeb put it into perspective. Ukraine ranks first in global sunflower production and sixth in global corn production. And Ukraine is ranked ninth in the globe for both wheat production as well as soybean production. Overall, Ukraine has more than 41.5 million hectares of agricultural land. That equates to 102.5 million acres, and it covers 70% of their country. And in the northern U.S. as well as Canada, tensions are growing over the vaccine mandate and what it means for truckers. And some in the industry warn that fertilizer could be strained even more. People sharing photos of possible shortages at grocery stores, which many are blaming on the vaccine mandate that went into effect earlier this month. A similar mandate went into place in the U.S. about a week ago that would require truckers who go across the border to be vaccinated for COVID-19. And while fertilizer prices are already high and supplies are low, there's concern building that the mandate could put an even bigger strain on fertilizer supplies in the U.S. That is one of their concerns is how they're going to get fertilizer back from Canada that they regularly have been getting, you know, easily from Canada for years. And now we're going to have to figure out a new new situation. You know, they have some drivers that can go. But again, if you had 14 drivers that could go and now you only have four, you have to be creative on how you're going to get that done. Crepeau says estimates point to as few as 25 percent of current U.S. truck drivers being vaccinated. And Sean Haney, who hosts Canada's Real Agriculture, says estimates in Canada for just the drivers that go cross-border point to anywhere from 10 to 30 percent of those drivers being unvaccinated. Meanwhile, the Biden administration says it will not be enforcing the federal employee vaccine mandate 
for now. The move comes after a Texas federal judge last week called the mandate an overstep of presidential authority. USDA also said it will not enforce the White House order while a court appeal is pending. The agency saying this includes pausing all activities related to processing exemption requests and any disciplinary actions. As of January 19th, more than 88% of USDA employees were vaccinated. About 10% have requested medical or religious exemption. Well, a big court decision this week over Proposition 12. A superior court in California halting enforcement of the law that just went into effect at the start of the year. The California state law set new housing requirements for pork sold in the state. The court saying the law won't go into effect until 180 days after the state sets final regulations. The National Meat Institute, which had opposed Proposition 12, says the judge's decision recognizes the complexity of the pork supply chain and the burdensome and costly provisions of Prop 12. Also in the courts this week, the Supreme Court says it will review the waters of the U.S. rule. The justice is saying they will consider it probably in the term beginning in October. It will review a decision by the Ninth U.S. Court of Appeals. It said it would consider whether that court used the proper test for determining whether wetlands are waters of the United States. Justices will hear the case, even though the Biden administration is writing a new definition of the clean water law. All right, that's it for the news. Well, record snowfall in parts of the parched plains. We'll have a check of weather when we come back. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator, it's not just any closing wheel. Reach your yield potential. Pre-order by January 31st with coupon code USFR for free shipping. Now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Urasavik. Matt, if you go just west of here, record snowfall in parts of Kansas and the Plains. Here in Missouri, we're having a warm-up. Yet you go farther north, and they had absolutely frigid temperatures this week. Yeah, that's right, Tyne. We had very, very cold air up in the northern plains and up into the upper Midwest as well. We're going to see more of that as this week rolls along, but let's take a look at the root zone right now. Still dry through parts of the mid-Atlantic. Very damp there where we had a lot of moisture over the past month in parts of the Tennessee Valley, Mississippi, southern part of the Mississippi River Valley as well. But once you get into Texas, Oklahoma, and back towards the west where all those drought conditions are, extremely dry soil moisture going on back Back there getting a little bit of help though as we head through this week and we'll show you that coming up here in just a minute but again those drought conditions really paint the picture likely some help coming from texas on to the east even up here in the midwest as we head through this week and even a little bit more help coming for these abnormally dry spots along the east coast but back there in the west it is going to remain mostly dry heading through this week and again the jet stream will paint the picture for you we'll have a storm forming here to the south as we head through monday and that will work right up through the Tennessee Valley up into the Ohio Valley, bringing snow to the north, rain to the south, could be heavy rain as well. And then in behind that system, here comes the cold air yet again. We could be talking about some of the coldest air of the season behind that storm system, and it could even make it all the way down here to parts of Tennessee and Arkansas as well. But behind that system, 
Look at all of this mild air across the Four Corners region, down across the Gulf Coast as well. More of a zonal pattern setting up by next weekend, so something to keep an eye on. But by Monday, again, this is our storm system that will be forming, already spreading some showers and even a few thunderstorms into Texas. Meanwhile, just a little clipper system up there to the north. The rest of the country, though, cold in the northeast after all that snow over the weekend and, and now just looking at sunny skies across the mid-Atlantic. As we head into Wednesday, though, 2nd of February, here comes that storm system breaking out across the parts of the Great Lakes and back there into the Midwest as well, bringing a swath of heavy snow. And again, this could still move just a little bit because it's towards the middle of this week. More rain and even a few thunderstorms there to the south. And this is going to be a train of low pressure systems moving right up through the center of the country. A lot of moisture coming up with this as well. And as we head towards Friday, that cold front sweeps off the coast. Colder air in behind it. Skies start to clear out. It will be mild in the west and then still a little leftover precipitation there up and down the coast as we head through this uh, Friday. So temperatures this week below normal back to the west above normal out ahead of that system and the precipitation is going to be much of the same below normal in the west and above normal where we're going to see all of that move through the eastern half of the country. February temperatures though looking above normal from the four corners region through the southeast and up into the mid Atlantic and northeast below normal into the northwest and um, pretty much the same for February precip above normal there in the Great Lakes back in the northwest, but below normal in some places where we need it the most. Time back to you. Well, from tensions in Ukraine and what it could mean if Russia invades and the impact it could have on commodity prices, but also looking at South America's grip on commodity markets. Clinton Griffiths takes over our roundtable discussion this week from the Great Lakes Crop Summit with an outstanding panel of guests. That discussion happens next. U.S. Farm Report on the road from the Great Lakes Crop Summit, a partnership between the Corn Marketing Program of Michigan, the Michigan Soybean Committee, and the Michigan Wheat Program is brought to you by Hudson Inc., your local John Deere dealer, proudly serving farmers across Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. I'm Clinton Griffiths. Uh, we're here at the Great Lakes Crop Summit. It's a, a joint effort by the Corn Marketing Program of Michigan, the Michigan Soybean Committee, and the Michigan Wheat Program. Today's session generously sponsored by Huston Incorporated. Happy to be here. We've got a great group of panelists, Ken Lake, uh, Jim McCormick, and Angus Kelly. Thank you so much for being here. Let's start with the week's markets. Ken, we'll begin with you. What was your takeaway? What did we see this week as far as market movement goes? We saw quite a bit of volatility, especially in the wheat market, you know, with the uh, Ukraine-Russian issues that are going on. And then on top of that, the um, Midwest crop conditions got really bad, or the reports came out really bad. So we've seen another bump in wheat prices because of that. Subsequently, in the last couple of days, that sold off a little bit. So we kind of think that those extensions higher this week in the wheat market probably should get uh, guys thinking about selling wheat a little bit. Uh, in the corn and bean markets, you know, it's kind of steady. We did make some uh, close to contract highs in uh, March corn and March soybeans, but fell a little bit short of that uh, this week. But all those contracts are tracking above their uh, 10, 20, 50 day moving averages. And even in the uh, uh, corn and soybean contracts in the weekly charts, those will still look like those are tracking above some support levels there. So we're encouraged that at least old crop corn and beans are still on track to uh, stay fairly firm here. 
Jim, as we talk about some of the volatility we've seen, we have seen some swings, some pretty big movements here over the last few days. Uh, what, what have been behind those? What's the takeaway? Right now, interesting, Clinton, uh, you know, as Ken, a lot of it was just, you know, weather and, and the plains being a little bit dry. And definitely the Ukraine issue has definitely got a lot of people interest, you know, paying attention. But we're seeing a, the inflationary play come into the market quite strong, actually, we believe. And what I mean by that is you're seeing huge amounts of trades coming in. And what we're seeing, noticing, it, it's in the back months. Uh, we've seen a lot of trades that are called block trades, where essentially your funds are coming in here and buying up to 1,500, 2,500 contracts at a time. But they're not buying the March contract, they're not buying the DC 22 contracts, they're buying the December 23 contracts, and they're buying the November 23 contracts. So what that tells us is this professional money, this investor money, the inflationary hedges, they're in it for the long haul, they're buying, and I think they're prepared for a pretty volatile summer in 22 and potentially into 2023. Angus Kelly, work with NCGA. You've been focused a lot, quite a bit on policy. We, we've been having this geopolitical conversation about what's been going on and how it influences agriculture. From your perspective, fertilizer has been the biggest conversation in input costs. Indeed, I, I thought we'd be working on Next Generation Fuels Act and Farm Bill table setting and, and uh, getting new trade deals out there. And all we've worked on lately is fertilizer all the time. You know, we're okay with volatility as long as it makes the fertilizer prices for MPK go down, but it's only going one direction. Yeah. Uh, Ken, as we talk about uh, some of the things that are happening, uh, we look at the Ukraine, there's some tension there. How does that continue to influence the wheat market? Well, the Ukraine and Crimea, uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine together export about 29% of the world's wheat. So if that happens to be a disruption in that world export market in the Ukraine, then Obviously, buyers might have to come to the United States for wheat, so that had, was the cause for the interest in, in, in the wheat, wheat market uh, and, the, and the bump up there. But you know, we've had troubles in that region for decades, mm. and I'm not necessarily sure it's anything new. It's something that we hopefully will work out, but for right now, it's benefiting the wheat market. Jim, we've talked a lot about South America over the last month or two. Are we past South America at this point? I think it's kind of moved to the back burner a little bit. Argentina, which is really, really hot and dry, is finally getting some rain, and that's going to help stabilize that crop a little bit. But their, their damage has been done. Forty percent of the Argentina corn crop is the first corn crop. A lot of that pollinated in 100, 110 degree heat, not a lot of rain for two or three weeks. So it's not going to come back. Real quick, we talked, he mentioned trade. How has trade looked, and, and is it a topic of conversation? It's something that we talked about a lot over the last, you know, three years. Sadly, Clinton, I think that an aggressive trade agenda is really on ice right now. We're, 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 we're uh, let's say, encouraging the administration to get out there and put their arms around some of our trading partners and make deals. But right now, we're heavily reliant on China. So many things to cover. We'll have much more when we come back with more U.S. Farm Report. Well, each week on the show right now, we're trying to navigate the difficult supply chain issues. But what about just producing those products here domestically? John Phipps says the solution may not be that simple. The current struggle with the supply chain, or web as I like to think of it, has prompted a predictable response. Let's stop depending on others for things we need and just do it ourselves. We went through something similar with oil in the 80s. But ending that dependence is much easier said than done. Partly it's due to things like man massive entrenched manufacturing systems, 
foreign subsidies, and the locations of materials and labor. A big problem may even be our capitalistic system and individual freedom, believe it or not. Computer chips are a prime example. Announcements have been made recently regarding new chip factories or foundries to be built in Texas, Arizona, and Ohio. The factories in Austin and Arizona will still be owned by the dominant chip makers, Taiwan's TSMC and South Korea's Samsung. Even though these countries are staunch allies, labeling this independence is debatable. The jobs may be here, but the profits will go to global investors largely from those countries. The big news recently was Intel's announcement of a massive factory near Columbus, Ohio. While it could become the world's largest chip maker, there are a couple of hitches if you read all the way through the reports. First, many experts expect the chip shortage to be much less severe as early as the second half of this year. By 2023, South Korea and Taiwan could be back up to previous capacity or more, which is kind of like Saudi Arabia pumping oil into the market. Second, the chips coming from this new plant, Intel's plant, will still be shipped overseas to be programmed and tested and then shipped back. Investors seem to have their doubts as well, and for good reason. You can see this on the price chart. New foundries will generate significant losses for several years, hardly an investor's dream. The U.S. foundries will require large numbers of already scarce skilled workers, not your typical assembly line veterans. Indeed, a large portion will be engineers. Our supply of people to do all kinds of work is declining now, and we have no plans to provide the years of training and education needed for such a labor force. Finally, building any kind of manufacturing plant in the U.S. is more costly, complicated, and time-consuming than in many other locations due to regulations, costs, and, oddly enough, citizen opposition. Remember Foxconn? To overcome established and more advanced chip competitors will require massive federal subsidies and even federal ownership, which is exactly our complaint about socialist economies. Any kind of freedom has a price, but freedom from economic dependence will require payment from our treasury and our principles. Thanks, John. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Machinery Repeat with Tractor Tales this weekend. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week, we're gonna learn about a 1967 Farmall 806 diesel that spent most of its life on a dairy farm in Pennsylvania. They bought it in 85 from Tri-State International in Beaver Falls. And these two brothers, they own Morgan's Dairy out next town over. They bought it, it had fenders on it. They put the 1066 cab on it and they put that little air cleaner on it. And when I got it, it had the 23 134s on the back and they were just, they were too big. <laughs> So I ended up putting 18 fours. I changed the water pump, radiator, and I really haven't done much to it. Never messed with the engine, and it runs pretty nice. It does most of the, I call them all with it, and if I want to get done in a hurry, I'll plow with it, because it pulls, I only have four bottom fast hitch for it. That's a fast hitch tractor, too. I'm farming a place down the road, and it's overgrown trees, briars, multi-floor rows, all kinds of, it's old strip mines. It's it's a mess over there, but it just rolls everything under. 
I've rolled locust trees under, I've rolled multi-floor rows under. So when I want to get something done in a hurry, I use this one. If I want to play, I take the MTA. <laughs> but it does the round baling, and if I mow hay, I usually use this. And like I said, it's always, if I call to mulch, it's this. I don't use it a whole lot, because I'm not crazy about the cab, but really don't want to go into the process of taking the cab off either, so. But where it came from, the place, I mean, Morgan's Dairy, they take care of their equipment. I even went up to the dealer up here, Gauze, Gauze Equipment. I asked them, I said, what do you think about an 806? Good tractor, good, you know, where's it coming from? And I said, Morgan's Dairy, and the guy there, he said, buy it. I said, well, they want 62, he said, buy it. Well, talking to farmers around the country right now, they all share the same concern, and it deals with inputs. Up next, we travel to Michigan to see how input prices as well as availability could shape planting decisions this year. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. While in Michigan this week, we learned that planting decisions this year are coming with an added layer of difficulty, and that's shaping outlooks for 2022. No matter where you go across the country right now, farmers share similar sentiments and concerns. The biggest thing that challenge for our farm is the input cost this year. I think that's gonna be a real challenge. As input prices climb, the pricing really seems to be a little bit out of control. Commodity prices are strong, but maybe not strong enough. Corn isn't, and soybeans aren't keeping up with the, the input cost. Matt Frostick says profits will be pinched with the current price scenario. We're looking at break-even costs, uh, uh, trying to find a margin if we can. Both farmers say even with commodity prices higher than where corn and soybeans set just two years ago, input prices have soared at a much quicker rate. We had that spike in corn a year ago in, in the summer. Now we've come back to that 550 range, which is um, a fair price, but when our inputs are some three times as much as a year ago, that's going to be a real concern on how to pencil that out. As input prices place strain on producers, farmers are looking to reduce application rates. Talk to some of my neighbors, they're thinking they're going to have to just cut back on inputs, and I think and what that's going to happen is our yields will suffer. So I think as a whole, as a country, we may have a, a lower yield. And it's not just price, supply is also a major concern, especially for chemistry. Another concern I have is getting some of the chemistry for herbicides. I've been hearing rumors that atrazine is going to be tight. Uh, we use that in our rotation for herbicides. Michigan farmers battle glyphosate resistant weeds and so having options for fighting back is something they see as vital. One of the weeds in our area is mare's tail and so we use Liberty for that. We were fortunate to get some last fall that was holdover but right now you just can't find it. Whether it's chemicals or fertilizer this year, farmers say it's adding another layer of uncertainty to the gamble of farming every year. It's certainly taken more of our time and resources to, to figure out the, the avenue to what are we going to plant? Are we going to plant more corn or more soybeans? That could impact some of that, how we do that, depending on when we get it. And we probably won't know that until middle of April, 1st of May. Jana Fritz is the CEO of Michigan Soybean Committee. She says both supply and price are fueling outlooks. Growers are still not settled in their crop mix. Um, so there's excitement mixed with a little bit of apprehension. 
Executive Director of Michigan Corn Growers Jim Zook says it's also prompting farmers to explore other options. I think the farmer that's looking ahead, he's going to be flexible. You know, he may actually partner with his neighbor who is the livestock producer that has some, um, some natural nutrients to actually go back out on the field. And one option may be to plant more wheat. It's such a good thing for rotation. And especially for us, if you have a good year in the fall and you can get the corn and soybeans off, um, wheat's a no-brainer. The challenge has just been, you know, the last five years, uh, a couple, three of them have just been really tough in the fall to get that wheat in. The latest USDA report shows winter wheat seedings were up 2% across the U.S. this year, but in Michigan, USDA shows plantings were down 23% compared to last year. And one reason may be due to the extremely wet fall. Lots of rain, especially in the southeast part of the state. Uh, we're definitely looking at a hit when we look at acreage. The good thing is we are going off a really large acreage of last year. So we are going to have a big hit, but hopefully we're still in there. But in Michigan, agriculture is extremely diverse. With more than 300 commodities, it's only second to California in terms of the number of products grown and produced, which gives some farmers in the state more options for what to plant in 2022. We grow some specialty crops too in, in Michigan, so that you know, those are some hard acres that we've got to push around to, as a rotation. But you know, beans and corn will flex a little bit, and you know, supplies and inputs based on what what is there will will probably, it, it may be a last minute decision, you know, in the spring is based on the weather too. The diversification has helped propel Michigan producers into the international market. We can grow great soybeans in Michigan, commoditized, middle of the, you know, run of the mill, just like in Indiana and Iowa. Uh, in fact, Michigan is high in protein content for commoditized soybeans. But because we have a unique microclimate in the state, we also have the ability and our infrastructure is such that we can do some specialty niche markets. She says there are also areas of Asia with a growing appetite for soybeans that are grown across the state. There's a natto variety that is just grown mainly in central Michigan that goes into eastern and southern Asian uh, delicacies in their, uh, for, their, for their consumers. Um, between that and non-GMO, other food grade for soy milk and tofu and tempeh, our elevators are set up and our growers are set up to do these specialty niche markets and we're trying all the time to advance those markets as much as we can to get a good return on investment for our farmers. From policy changes to profitability questions this year, it's not enough to completely drown out the eternal optimism in agriculture. I think these farmers, like everything, they're kind of like the Chicago Cubs. There's always next year, right? They're very optimistic about uh, the, the next year. And actually right now, things look uh, like at least they'll maybe break even. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we're back in Michigan for the Great Lakes Crop Summit as Clinton Griffiths rejoins us for round two of our marketing discussion this week. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by AgriGold, your seed ally in the field with unparalleled options that perform on your farm. Learn more at agrigold.com. U.S. Farm Report on the road from the Great Lakes Crop Summit, a partnership between the Corn Marketing Program of Michigan, the Michigan Soybean Committee, and the Michigan Wheat Program, is brought to you by Hudson, Inc., your local John Deere dealer, proudly serving farmers across Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee.
Welcome back to the Great Lakes Crop Summit. I'm Clint Griffiths filling in here, and we've got a great panel discussing some really big topics of things going on in the markets here the last uh, week or so. Let's start with the livestock side of things. And Jim, I'll just start with you. Uh, from a cattle and hogs perspective, what's been moving in those markets? Well, the hogs have been moving up. They've been just continuing to go push higher. We're seeing investment into it, breaking out on the charts. So technically, that's a good sign. The market is concerned about supply as we've had some disruptions of at processing plants. The cattle market's been struggling a little bit. I, I think in general, it's worried about the stock market. If anybody's watched the stock market, it's been some of the vicious rides. We were down 1,000 points early in the week for a few hours, and then by the end of the day, we re reversed it. The cattle market kind of keys off of that, a little bit worried about consumer cons demand. I think in the long run, you have to be optimistic. Uh, this coronavirus seems to be racing through the Midwest, and I think as we get out of it into the springtime, there's gonna be a lot of pinup demand to go on vacation, go out to places, and I think you will see that demand come in, and I think that's a good sign. The other, you know, wild card is still the exports. We do rely on a lot of exports for both pork and the cattle, so if that would, you know, if the exports would pull back a little bit, that would be a little bit negative. Ken, I want to jump back into grains here real quick and, and talk about, and we do this every January, it, it's the conversation we have every year leading into spring planning, but what does the acreage mix look like, and how might inputs make some of those decisions? We know everything that's happened in the last few months in regards to uh, acreage uh, seedings has been the idea that we're going to drop a million and a half or two million acres out of our corn seedings this year because of the input costs. Um, but you know what we're seeing is we're seeing farmers actually being able to cover input costs, not necessarily see them uh, covering that well on the corn side and making a sale, which I think could be a mistake. And the reason it could be a mistake is because you know we know corn farmers want to plant corn and in the Midwest. And even in Michigan, even though we're not a top 10 corn state, we do have some of the best corn ground in the country and we have a good potential corn yield land. So these guys will plant the corn and if we get the yields, then you know, we'll be okay. My fear is that we don't see that million, million and a half uh, acreage reduction in corn and we get something closer to no reduction at all. And if that happens, then we see a big drop in December corn futures and that's the sort of thing that I think Farmers, especially that have bought input costs, need to manage that spread between the input costs that they've bought and the, and the corn on the other side that they might want to go ahead and sell. Angus, on a policy side of this conversation, there have been a lot of conversations about fertilizer costs and supply chain. What do we know and is there any chance that this shakes loose between now and spring? The short answer is no, based on a study from IHS market that we're going to be releasing soon sometime between now and Commodity Classic. The, they, the graphs they show put MP and K at steadily climbing into 2023 and starts to plateau at the end of 2023. And then finally, by 2024, we get some relief and it goes down. Now, one of the problems, and we can talk about supply chain, and, and the supply chain's a new weather. You blame everything on the supply chain or the cost of natural gas is what the manufacturers will tell you, fertilizer, tariffs is a huge problem. Now is not the time to be keeping foreign sources of fertilizer out of the country, and that's exactly what tariffs are doing. So guess who pays 99.9% .9 of those duties or tariffs? You people do, you, out, out in the country. So this is driving up costs even more, and we've been fighting that tooth and nail. Jim, as we talk about making a plan for 2022, I mean, you heard what Angus said, it could be another year or two. How do we begin to, to make a marketing move or make a marketing plan that fits with what we're seeing right now in the, this year? Right now, our group's encouraging people to really crunch the numbers. And like Ken said, we've encouraged people to get some out of your 2022 crop produ uh, hedged, um, corn and beans both. The reality is there is a lot of at risk. 
if we would get 93 million acres of corn, we're probably, and, and you manage to pull a trend yield, we're gonna go down. On the other hand, we are trying to encourage you guys to keep your options open, because if the acres comes closer to 90, 90-90, kind of more of the balance we've been in the last couple of years, you get a 90 million acres, you have trend yield of 177, we harvest about 92.5% of that, what we plant. That would only add somewhere between 75 million to 100 million to the ending stocks if you keep demand unchanged. So the reality is there's no room for error if you only get 90 million acres. So you want to keep some of that upside open as well. Ken, you agree? I do agree, yep. If we drop down to that 90 million acres, then these corn values will you know, approach closer to $6 than where they are here today. All right, well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all for being here. We want to thank our sponsors for having us here in the Great Lakes Crop Summit for having U.S. Farm Report out. It's been a great show, a great event, and we'll be back with more U.S. Farm Report coming up. Well, just down the road from where the Great Lakes Crop Summit took place this week is a secret seed society at Michigan State University. And it's that secret society that's uncovering the secrets of weed seed. Dr. Frank anyway, Toluski we'll has happens. been a part of history here it's at Michigan nice State for nearly 30 years. I just grew this passion for plants. A fascination with growing plants that became an obsession. It's really a neat, it's a really neat place to be. I, I, I'm really very happy to be here for the last 29 years. That obsession was fueled even more when he stepped into history in the 1980s. Well, Professor Beale started the experiment back in 1879. For 142 years, a secret seed society here at Michigan State has uncovered one of the world's oldest science experiments. Back in 1879, uh, the latter part of the, of the 19th century, we didn't have herbicides. We didn't have high-tech tractors and plows uh, for tilling and cultivating. Professor Beale, the namesake of their tradition, had one burning question about weeds. So Professor Beale being very much involved with agriculture here in the state uh, and in the country, uh, set out to answer this question, you know, how long do seeds remain viable? So he gathered 21 different species of annual and biannual weeds and collected the seeds. What he would do is count out 50 seeds of every species and mix them in with a sandy mix and then fill up uh, 20 bottles of the, uh, uh, with the same mix of sand and, and the same number of seeds. Bottles buried in a secret location the fall of 1879. That was the first time he experienced it. He opened the bottle, he shook out the contents, spread it out, put it in the greenhouse and recorded what germinated. Today, the bottles are only uncovered once every 20 years. They're just little time capsules of biology that's over 100 years old. Only a handful of people know just where that secret spot is. And this year, a team of five tapped to continue the tradition did just that, digging up a bottle in April. We, we excavate in the very early morning hours. We don't want curiosity seekers you know, to say, oh, I know where the bottles are. The other thing is that sunlight can be a trigger for germination. Carefully excavated, the team took the seeds to the growth chambers and spread them out, just as Beale had done 142 years prior. Spread them out, and then you wait for you know seven to ten days. Is how long it takes for a seed to germinate? And after seven to ten days, history started to sprout. So it's so rewarding. The last person to touch this plant when it was a seed was Professor Beale, 140 plus years ago. Out of the 21 weed species originally buried, only one is a survivor today, a verbascum variety commonly called the great mullen. Well, I mean, talk about a survivor, and we still get a relatively high germination rate. You know, you have 20 of the original 50 seeds germinated. You know, that's 40% germination rate. In 2000, we had a 48% germination rate 
so, I mean, that's that's incredible. Toluski just retired from here at Michigan State, but he hopes the experiment doesn't just live on, but is amplified by what uncovering more answers as to what this historic seed bank can provide. We're literally standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful um, honor, opportunity to be involved in this experiment. Now, while it is super secret, they did tell us that recently they actually had to let the Michigan State University grounds crew in on where those bottles are buried, just so they don't uncover those in future projects. All right, when we come back, John Fitz. The problem of heirs with attitudes. Transitioning the farm is never easy. Here's John Phipps. From Sam Rowetto, the practical reasons why an estate would be divided equally between adult children is easily understood. But the sense of entitlement heirs oftentimes have seems extremely presumptive. While they may have opinions as to how the estate is distributed, it is far from being their decision. There are reasons practical an heir with substance abuse, emotional, an heir who is simply more involved, financial, an heir significantly disadvantaged through no fault of their own, etc., as to why the division of assets would not be equal. It seems to border on, if not to cross the line of outright rudeness, to have the temerity to interject themselves into the process. Well, thanks for the question, Sam, uh, send me an address for your muck. The attitudes of heirs have been a complaint by older generations for centuries. I talked about these problems two years ago and will link to those commentaries and other thoughts I've had if you go to the web version of this commentary on AgWeb. My observation on this issue has boiled down to this. Unearned wealth brings out the worst in everybody. Even the prospect of free money can alter our personalities and decisions. Estates may also be eternal problems because they are essentially efforts to continue control of possessions and even lives after your death. Framed that way, it becomes a philosophical or even religious controversy. As a result of my years of surviving and writing about farm estates, taxes, and fairness, I have heard many stories about unfortunate outcomes and lingering family divisions. It may be because successful estate settlements are relatively forgettable for those participants, or it may be because they are rarer than I think. Rural lawyers may be able to make a more specific estimate on the ratio of difficult resolutions to amicable settlements. It has also struck me that because of increased longevity, most dispositions of wealth today are made by very old people to merely old people. The changes in our memories and attitudes at those ages make compromise problematic. One thing I do believe in is outlining in your own words what you want to happen and why to all involved long before you think it's needed. Today that could be easily recorded, uh, shared, and replayed, preventing many issues from arising later due to differing memories. While you cannot dictate how your heir should feel about your decisions, you can explain how you feel about your decisions. 
Well, thank you for that question. And remember, if you want one of those fancy mugs that John has each weekend, you need to ask a question or a comment. If he uses that on the show, he'll ship you one in the mail. You can send your questions or comments to mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, fueling demand, that's next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. Welcome back. Well, when we were at the Great Lakes Crop Summit this week, we learned that Michigan's commodity groups are really doing all that they can to fuel demand. In the recent years, we found studies where, you know, we're taking carbon out of the air with, with, the, with the crop of corn we grow every year. So it's the only energy that we have where we can pull carbon out of the air and keep it from dispersing based on using it in, in a liquid fuel. So it's exciting some of the studies that have come out in the, in the recent years to uh, support our industry. And we know we're not the only answer, but we're a very important answer to that environment and keeping our economy rolling without any interruptions. Well, there were over a thousand attendees at the Great Lakes Crop Summit this week. Just an amazing turnout. Thank you so much for having us. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you for joining us. Next weekend, we're on the road where Clint Griffiths will be providing coverage from the National Cattlemen Beef Association annual meeting. So make sure to tune in as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.